Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It feels like it's been forever since we've been together uh, in in 1 Corinthians, but I'm, I'm really thankful for everybody who filled in for me over the last few weeks. Uh, it's awesome to be able to trust other men and uh, what God's showing them in his word. And so that's, that's a, a privilege to share the pulpit uh, with my brothers. Is anybody else recovering from sickness? Amen. Yeah. Uh, we, there was a lot of people out uh, last Sunday, but it's good to see people are back kind of in full force and and uh, hopefully you're recovering the way I am. So if, I, if I'm coughing throughout the sermon, if I get riled up and start coughing, um, forgive me for that. I'm going to do my best to, to keep things in check. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this chapter uh, so far has been primarily about this idea of taking heed. Taking heed. You remember that, right? Um, to consider your ways, to, to consider and to analyze, learn how to analyze your life, to consider your ways, to reflect, to reflect on who you are lest he fall. Because that is a danger, right? That's, that's the danger for all broken people, people who are made of flesh. The danger is that there are pitfalls everywhere we go. And sometimes they're made for us and sometimes we make them ourselves. And so taking heed is an opportunity for us to analyze and consider our own lives and the ways in which we make pitfalls for ourselves, right? And how do, we, how do we work through that and determine what those things are so that we can deal with them properly? And so we've been discussing how important it is for us to value biblical introspection, learning how to analyze your life in light of God's word, how to reflect on God's word and, and let it function as a mirror to reveal to us all the blemishes that we, we need to deal with before we go out of the house, you know? And God's word does have the power to do that, but so many of us fail to let it refine us that way, to take the time to let God's word work on us in that way. And so we become victim to the temptations and the desires that surround us everywhere we go. And, uh, and, and we've really got to deal with that. And so that's what we're doing in chapter 10. Now, the conversation on taking heed the last time we were together, which was four weeks ago, by the way. It's been a, been a minute. Uh, Paul took some time. He carved out a moment to remind us and encourage us that in moments of trial and temptation, that God has given us everything we need to be overcomers. And we're relying on that, aren't we? I mean, we're, that's what we're laying hold on. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 10 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Praise the Lord, right? Now, today we're going to continue talking about what it means to take heed lest we fall, uh, but we want, uh, we're going to be more specific this, this week, and we're going to hone in on this idea of idolatrous associations that we have, idolatrous associations. Have you guys ever seen Ocean's Eleven? Yeah. Oh, good. I thought that was like something of my generation that you guys that would, are not. So I, I came up with another one. You guys are, I know that y'all are familiar with Baby Driver. Yeah, right? That was very popular. Uh, now, 
in these movies, these, these kind of heist movies, these bank robber movies, there are, there are always, there's always the guy with the gun, right, that goes into, into the bank, right? And he's usually the crazy one, right? The more composed one is usually out in the car, and he's the getaway driver, right? The getaway driver, right? He's cool under pressure. And in our minds, we generally sympathize with him because he's not crazy. <laughs> he's just hard up, right? He just needs some money. Now, it's funny, though, in these films and in real life, that criminal law does not dissociate the guy waving the gun to rob the bank from the guy that's driving the getaway car. They're both criminals. They're both, they're both bad. They're both guilty of crimes, right? They both did wrong. And it's not like the getaway driver isn't actually robbing the bank. He is. Right? He's, he's just in charge of a different weapon, the car. Um, and he's guilty. He's guilty of sin, the sin of theft. Now, maybe you remember a time in your life where you were at, in the wrong place at the wrong time, especially in your childhood. You always found yourself in these situations where you were hanging out with your friends and they were up to no good. And then when they got found out, you got in trouble too. Are you guys familiar with this? How that worked? Okay. Don't lie to yourself. <laughs> right? You always want to paint yourself in the best light possible. Listen to me. You were there. You were there for a reason. You didn't need to be there. You're, you're, you are guilty by your association, aren't you? You're guilty by your association. See, you become complicit. You become an accomplice to bad behavior because you chose to be around bad behavior. And the point is that sometimes your associations, they actually make you guilty of sin. The things that you associate with are actually the things that make you guilty of wickedness and sin before a holy Lord. Now today, we're going to discuss what it means to take heed to the associations in our lives that have made us complicit in idolatry. And so here's our question for today. I know we've, got, we've been doing these questions, okay? So if you're writing things down, you want to start by writing this down. And the question is, so where is your idolatry hiding? It's in there. It's hiding, okay? And maybe you failed to acknowledge it. But, but you, just like any human, any person, is prone to idolatry. So the question for today is, where is it hiding at? Because if we're going to take heed, lest we fall, then we need to be aware of all the places in our lives that idolatry hides. And it's, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it's hiding within your associations, okay? So let's pray, <coughs> cough number one. Okay, let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. We're going to read our passage, and we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for these people uh, that I love so much. I've missed them, and it's good to be here. It's good to be here with them and, and to be in your word. And uh, Lord, my, my love for them uh, compels me to pray for them and to pray for us, Lord, as a family, that we would deal with the sin in our lives, um, we would deal with the temptations, that we might be more 
available, uh, more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might be more fit for use as vessels of honor instead of vessels of dishonor. We don't want to be used uh, despite the fact that we've got sin in our lives. Uh, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of really good things that can happen when we just follow, uh, follow the pattern and the principles that you put before us, but so many of us are hindering true fruitfulness and real joy in our lives because we have pet sins and pet associations that, that we, keep, we keep and we don't deal with. And uh, so, Lord, I just pray that you would show us what it means to, to get rid of and to throw away the idols that are hiding in our closets and that we would trust you for more, knowing that you want to bless uh, your servants when they are right before you. You're a jealous God and you deserve our full attention. And so we pray for your help today and we pray for, for this time in your word. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Okay, you guys ready to read along? Verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one, and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Some tough questions there. So let's start here in verse 14, where it says, Wherefore, my beloved, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Now this statement is going to frame the entire conversation that we're going to have today. Paul is pressing the Corinthian church to flee or intentionally separate themselves from the idolatry that surrounded their everyday lives. Now, we've talked about this in previous sermons about the city of Corinth and how it was a world of the, uh, it was world renowned for uh, the worship of false gods. And people would travel to Corinth to participate in forms of, of, of sacred prostitution in the temples to Aphrodite. And so people were traveling from all over the region to, to go and to, to basically hire prostitutes in worship to the false gods, okay? Now that's real twisted. That's some twisted stuff, right? And now here's the thing about that. There was many gods in, in Corinth. There was Apollo and, and, and Aphrodite as well as Poseidon and many, many others. And people would go there to worship and the impact, the influence of this kind of worship, it permeated everything. It permeated their economy. It affected the way that they engaged one another culturally. All right? it, it, it impacted the home. And so people could not help but to be affected by the culture that surrounded them. They could not help it. These religious practices no doubt had a cultural impact on the social imaginary of the, Corinth, uh, the Corinthian people. People in this society could not help but see their world through a lens that dismissed sex as casual 
and reduced marital relationships to self-gratification. And this is why in chapter 7, we spent time talking about marriage because in Corinth, marriage was a real problem. People were trading spouses like Pokemon cards. (laughs) Pokemon cards, because that's all I hear about right now. Christmas is coming up, and uh, Shepard is asking for Pokemon cards. So, but he likes, he likes to trade Pokemons uh, with his friends. That's what he does. He trades the Pokemons. Uh, and apparently, apparently marriages were like the Pokemon cards, right? People, they, 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 people would just divorce their spouse and, and be, why? Why, why, why was divorce and issues of divorce so rampant in Corinth? Well, it's because sex was so casual in their culture, right? You see the association? There's a culture on the outside of the church, and it's creating a, a fog and a cloud that, that one cannot help but be affected by. And so when people come out of that cloud and they come into their home, they have a hard time seeing their family and their church and the, and the lives, that, the, the, the relationships that are meaningful to them. They have a hard time not seeing those things based on what they are affected by on the outside of the church. And, and we are no different. We're no different from that. We're affected the same way. Now, what we're getting at here in, in, in our story today, in the narrative of what we're talking about, is that even in the most basic level of observances in Corinth, like sitting down to eat a meal with family and friends, it was common for Corinthians, even Christians, to sit down within the temple and enjoy a meal that was sacrificed to Aphrodite, just to sit down, because that's what people did in their culture, and that's what they do. So Christians would go into pagan temples and sit down and hang out with their friends and cut up and have a good time. Some of y'all are going to go to Taj Palace today or whatever, wherever it is you go. I mean, I'm not. But some of y'all are going to do that, right? You guys are much more daring than me. I'm going to go home and eat a ham sandwich. Um, <clears throat> but, but they would sit down casually with, with people in the temple and, and partake and eat of uh, animals that had been sacrificed to false gods. Why? Because it's just what they did. This is what people in their culture did. This is, and this is how the world permeates and it gets into the church and it gets into the nooks and crannies. You can't help but go out onto your university campus or into your workplace or onto social media and not be affected by what's around you. You're carrying all those contexts and those cultures into your home and into your life and even into your faith, and you don't even know you're doing it. So before we get too far today, I want to suggest that each and every one of us struggle with the same exact issues in our personal lives. For many of us, our idolatry is no longer consigned to the shrines of our communities, but they've begun to conspicuously erect themselves in the groves and the high places of our hearts. Let's look at how Paul frames the issue of of our idolatry. He starts by describing uh, how we worship in the practice of the Lord's Supper. Now, we we spent some time on this. The last time we were together, we talked about the Lord's Supper. And so if you want to learn about the Lord's Supper and what the Bible says about that form of communion and that ordinance, you can go back and, and, and listen to that sermon. 
But we're going to pick it up here in verse 15. <clears throat> I speak as to wise men. Judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the origin of the Lord's Supper was Christ's last supper, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. During, during the supper, he commanded his disciples to perpetually recreate this ceremonial meal in order to remember him, right? The significance is you, you, you take of the bread and you take of the cup with the intention that you remember Christ and his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection and what that means for us. That's why we do it. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 says, when the hour was come, he sat down and, and the 12 disciples with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not uh, any more eat, there, uh, eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and, di and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after, su uh, after supper saying, this cup is the new Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So as we observe the Lord's Supper, we recognize it's a mechanism for remembrance. As we take uh, time to collectively observe this occasion, we, we acknowledge immediately that the bread pictures for us the body of Christ that was sacrificed on our behalf, right? How his body was broken for us. And as we take of the cup, we remember that his blood was shed to atone for the sins in our lives and that the, the work that he did in shedding his blood was done with the intention that our sin would be washed away forever. And so when we sit and we participate that, we engage in a worship of remembrance before the living God. And, and this, this remembering, it should promote in us a revival of worship for Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. Whenever we do the Lord's Supper together, the objective, when, when we finish, when you put the little plastic cup and you shove it between the, the cushions on the pew, which is what you do, right? That's what you do. I think that that's etiquette, actually. <laughs> um, when you do that, you should be standing up and engaging in praise, more ready than you were before you took of the cup and took of the bread. Because what it's doing, what the remembering is doing in you is it's putting you in a position ready for praise. For ready, ready for a, a worship as a lifestyle. It's a revival for you. It's a mini revival that you get to experience every time we sit down and take part. So Paul's calling the church to consider the fact that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we share in his sacrifice. Okay, that's, that's what you need to get doctrinally here. Okay, is that when we take of the Lord's Supper, we are participating, we are partakers in the fellowship of Christ's sacrifice. Big deal. It says here in verse 17, for we being many are one bread and, and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Communion reminds us that we are one with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But here's the deal. Uh, forms of participatory meal worship, uh, they've always existed. 
They've, they've always existed, even prior to the Lord's Supper in this ordinance. So look at verse 18. Paul continues on. Now, trust me, this is getting somewhere. You have to follow with me here, but we're getting somewhere. So he, he points to the Jewish sacrifice as a form of communion with God. He reminds the Corinthians here that, look, it, just like the Lord's Supper, Jews have been participating and partaking in communion with God for quite some time. And this is how it looks. Verse 18, behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So here Paul draws an analogy from history. How in some of the Old Testament offerings, after certain parts had been burnt upon the altar and, and the priests took their parts, right? The priests would take their part because they, they had to eat, right? So they would take some and they put it in the meat locker or wherever they put it. And they would have their meat, but some of that meat was reserved for the worshipers to come together and co collectively eat from what had been offered to God. And they would sit together in communion over the sacrificial meal, and they do that in the tabernacle court. And per, per, by participating in the fruit of the altar, one fellowshiped with the God of the Bible. B by eating that meal, they, they were fellowshipping with God. They were acknowledging the value of what had been sacrificed, Right? And in, in many ways, the, their, their worship had not ceased at the altar. It had carried over into the cultural aspects of their life. And now they were fellowship and communing with one another and with God over the sacrificial meal. So, so check it out. Whether, whether it be the partaking in the Lord's Supper or whether it be the Old Testament Jews partaking of the post-sacrificial meal, associations of worship are established. Associations of worship are being established. So the association is I'm associating with Christ through the bread and the wine. I am associating with God through the sacrificial meal. There's an association that's taking place and it's a significant one. It's important. And so here's our first key point. <clears throat> the worship we participate in is the worship we declare. It's very simple. But I think it's misunderstood. I think it's misunderstood. Because many of us don't know that we're participating in false worship. We don't, we're not aware of it. We don't acknowledge it. So we have to get this truth down. We have to understand this. The worship we participate in is the worship that we are declaring, declaring to God, declaring to the congregation, and declaring to people outside of that association. Are we not? Okay, in other words, whatever form of worship we overtly engage in is the faith that we overtly associate with. The God of gods, we uh, the, 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 the God or gods that we fellowship with are the God or gods that we worship. Right? Does that make sense? Now, it's at this point that the readers of the letter um, that, that Paul sent to Corinth are beginning to say to themselves, What's go where is Paul going with this? He told us to flee from idolatry, and now he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he's talking about this Old Testament ritual meal. What's he, what is he getting at here? He, he, you know, are we supposed to flee from idolatry or what? What, do, what is all this business now, Paul is going to bring it all together right here and confronts us where we're at. This is where it's going to hit home. 
Verse 19, he says, What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. It's a fair request, I suppose. Hey, you got those uh, tissues? Oh, they've been going around the room, haven't they? See, y'all, y'all are in your fields. Thank you, thank you. Sorry. <clears throat> Forgive me. So he's confronting their idolatry. So it's, it's here that the wise men to whom Paul was, was writing are likely beginning to make the connections, right? It's here that they might begin to understand. If those who ate of the Jewish sacrifice were having fellowship with God from whose altar it came from, and if those who participated in the Lord's Supper were having fellowship with the one whose table they were served from, then the, con the conclusion is inescapable for us. Those who ate meat which had been offered to idols were having fellowship with those idols and had become partakers of pagan, pagan worship. You with me? Yeah. Now, Paul anticipates some protest here. Just like you might be in your mind, you're thinking, wait a second. You're thinking, I, I, you just said, you just said that these idols are nothing. And now suddenly we're in danger of worshiping falsely. They're not even anything. They're not a thing, right? He anticipates that. They remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that Paul had spoken to this already. And they're ready to use his own words against him, okay? 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are, uh, be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be, many God, uh, be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him and, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So it's just two chapters earlier, Paul's saying that these idols aren't anything. There's one God. What difference does it make? What sacrifice to an idol? It doesn't mean anything. Okay? So why not have a stake that's offered to Aphrodite? What difference does it make? So in anticipation of the referencing this idea, he refutes, verse 19. What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? Look, he knows that those things are nothing. They're shallow. They're vain. They're empty. That every false god has a facade, right? Every, every false idol has a good, a good facade on the outside, that, and it means nothing. It's hollow. It's empty, whether it's Baal, right, or whether it's your, your PS5. It's, it's an empty thing. Okay, but it's what's lurking behind that, that that actually contains the danger. So here's our key point. God knows what's veiled within our associations. God knows. He knows. He knows what's just behind our association. You know, there's no power in a false idol or their shrines, nor is there any spiritual value in the animals that, that have been sacrificed to them. However, behind those effigies which were imagined to be gods, are the true 
conspirators, demons who want to steal and confuse your worship. Now, demons do exist. So if you struggle with that, well, then just, you just need to read the Bible more. Demons do exist, and they, they, they have many disguises, and those disguises are intended to hide their more nefarious purposes, <clears throat> and their objectives, ultimately, are to convi- confine you or relegate you to false worship. It's their primary motive. The primary motive of any devil or demon is to, to orchestrate your life in such a way that you are relegated or confined to some form of reduced or false worship. Because as a saved person, as a person who's come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, look, not anything he can do about that. Not anything he can do about that. The the, the danger and the, the threat that you pose to him is your worship. And so he has to do anything he can to mingle your worship with false ideas. That's, that's what he's up to. That's what the devil's up to. So this is where we have arrived. The Corinthians were allowing their worship to be robbed each time they dismissively ate at the table of devils. But we too are guilty of false worship when we dismissively eat at the table of our enemy, when we enter into passive association with false idols. Okay, it's about to get real, real, real here. Okay? Uh, if we're going to learn to take heed, then it's necessary that we consider some helpful concepts for dealing with, dealing with the concessions that we've made to idols in our own lives. We've got to deal with that. So let's start. We're going to have a list here. You guys like lists. I know you do. So we've got a list here, okay? And it starts with this. There's a first principle that we need to understand, and that's this. Idolatry is sometimes hard to identify, <clears throat> It's hard to identify. It was hard for the Corinthians to identify it. They were convinced that they were just going to participate in a meal with their family members down at the temple. Like they're just try- they were just trying to go to Ruth Chris. Is that still a restaurant? I don't even know. I can't afford it, so I don't know if it exists anymore or not. It's gone? It's not on the plaza anymore? Where do people go for a steak? Capital Grill. Can't afford that either. Not happening. You know, every year... I get a bunch of gift cards from you guys around the holidays for Longhorn Steakhouse. I don't know. Um, we have a stack of those. Um, we should probably use some of those gift cards. Some of, y'all, you, some of y'all thought you were going to Longhorn Steakhouse, but when you got there, you were actually incidentally engaging with, with devils. Now, we have these things in our life too, right? Your waitress is not a messenger of Satan, okay? That's not, I'm sure that's what you guys thought of. So idolatry is hard to identify, and, and it's because, because the devil's sneaky. And this is such an important truth because it demands that we reflect on the affiliations that we have in our life. So, so think for a second. What, what are these affiliations that cause us to worship improperly? Well, you know, we have false... Uh, relationships, uh, we participate in in wrong relationships with people. So we have a bad relationship with, say, a boyfriend, an unhealthy and unequally yoked relationship with the opposite sex. Right? And, And we thought we just had a relationship. 
But that relationship was promoting false worship in your life. You were participating in something that ultimately had a devil behind it. And I'm not saying that person is a devil. I'm saying that the relationship is unhealthy and the facade is, well, he's handsome, he's attractive, or she's, she's beautiful, or she's sweet to me, or she's nice. And then we're so distracted from worshiping God, suddenly we realize, oh, wait a second, maybe that affiliation is not of the Lord. Or maybe it's money, right? Money can be a good thing, right? Money can be a good thing. What about our jobs? Our association with our job? Or our entertainment, the things that we like to entertain, you know, the, thing, the things that help us to decompress in the evening, <clears throat> the hours of scrolling that some of you do in your bed at one in the morning. I mean, if I, anything that keeps you up at one in the morning is probably an idol. That's all I'm saying. Is you're, like, if you're not asleep by like 10 o'clock, <laughs> anything that happens after that is is like a 57% chance that it's idolatry. <laughs> but sometimes it's entertainment. Sometimes it literally is what we eat or drink. All right? You call yourself a foodie. That's just, that's just language that you somehow in 2022 have put to worshiping food. Foodie. Doesn't even sound cool right? Um, things that we drink, you know, some of you, if we're honest with you, so, uh, honest with ourselves, some of us have struggled with drinking. And now some of it, it might just be you need to stop drinking Coca-Cola because it ain't good for you. You'll, you. When people stop drinking soda, they lose like 10 pounds immediately. That's evidence that it's not good. That's, a, that's all the evidence you need. But sometimes, you know, during COVID, a lot of people picked up drinking habits, and a lot of people, they, what they think they're doing in the evenings by having a glass or two of wine is just decompressing, right? But what I'm telling you is that some of you, you, you don't know it. You don't know it, but you are worshiping. You're worshiping a false idol. There's something, there's something that's not right with that association, Okay? There's nothing wrong with Coca-Cola. But for you, ask yourself. No, I mean, from time to time. It's like, take a little, take the, little milk, a little honey. You know what I mean? Okay? But my point is, is the Coca-Cola in and of itself is not what's evil. It's what you do with it. It's your approach to it. And we do, we have these things. Things that we rehearse in our mind. Okay? You, you know, listen. Some of you, just the things that you think about obsessively are your idols. Just the things that, you, you, that, that keep coming to your mind or that, you, that keep you up at night or you keep, that keep coming up in conversation and you can't help but when you're sitting by yourself reflecting on that thing, well, maybe it's an idol. Anything that we might long for with our hearts could, could set itself up to be an idol in our life. Now, here's the deal. We live in such a fleshly world that even Bible-believing Christians can be openly in idolatry and be so deceived that they can't identify it. So it reminds me of, do you guys remember the story of the nation of Israel when they're in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when they, they go out to battle against the Philistines? And their, very, their first thought, and they take, a, they take a huge blow, like the first battle out, does not go well. 
is real bad. And so they regroup, and the first thought that they have is, oh, you know what we need to do? Is we need to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. Because they're like going back to Joshua chapter 3 and 4, and they're saying to themselves, you know, it worked before. And what, what they did is they, they took the Ark out into battle, and they lost. They got their rear ends handed to them. The Ark got stolen by the Philistines, a whole nother story. Think the, the, the priest dies, his sons die. It was just bad, bad. You know, huge, huge blow. Now, the thing about that is the Ark of the Covenant, not a bad thing. Right? It's a good thing. It's a thing of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant was. But they had made it into an idol. They had, they had used it as a, as a front to their superstition and their hopes and desires. And we do that too. And some of you do it with ministry. Some of you do it with recognition in ministry even. So my point to you is this, is anything that you establish in your life as a, as, as, as a thing of significance or a thing that you do with regularity it has the potential to, potential to steal your heart and your mind. So even our blessings and comforts are prone to becoming idolatry. Now, identifying idolatry in our lives can be difficult, just like in Corinth, because evil has so permeated our culture that idol idolatry is potentially intertwined in the most menial things, aspects of our life, the most like monotonous things that we do, it could be intertwined into that. The easiest way to discover whether or not you have an idolatry in your life is to ask yourself a few questions. And so here's some questions for you to find out whether or not you've got idolatry going on. Man, it is hotter than a biscuit in here. <laughs> what is the deal? So he turned it down. Okay, question number one. Does it diminish my attention to God? Does it, does it diminish my attention for the things of the Lord? Does, it, does whatever that activity or thing or whatever it is, does it keep me from church? Does it keep me from attending church regularly? Does it, does it keep me from my quiet time? Do I get through the day having not read the Bible and prayed to God, but have done that thing? Whatever that thing is. So that's a really simple, straightforward question. Does it in any way diminish my attention for God? You know, I heard a really good quote this week. I think it's worth thinking about. Attention is the discipline of prayer. Attention is a really big deal. Attention is at a premium in our lives. We give our attention to all kinds of stuff, right? We squander it on all kinds of useless crap. Attention is the discipline of prayer. You want to you wanna know why you don't pray, why your prayer life struggles? Oh, it's because your attention is diverted to a million other things. Attention is the discipline of prayer. Question number two, does my association with it undermine God's worship in others? Oh, okay. That's an interesting question about worship. Does my association with it, my affiliation with that person, place, or thing undermine God's worship in other people. Now, the reason I think that that's important because a lot of us are not bothered by the fact that the things that we do 
hurt our testimony in the lives of other people or cause other people to fall. We're not bothered by it. And the fact that we're not bothered by it is the reason why it's an idol. Not because you do that thing or that you have a justification for it. My point is, if if it's bothering someone else and it's affecting their walk with the Lord, that association is, is wrong. And the fact that you won't give it up points to the fact that maybe it's an idol. It needs to bother you that other people are hindered by your activities or thoughts or the things that you do. Okay, here's another question. Do I make unnecessary excuses about it to mask my true convictions? Do, do I make unnecessary excuses about it to mask my true convictions? Are you always explaining it away? Now, y'all, I'm, 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 like half this sermon is on you. You understand that, right? Because I'm talking about imaginary things. So if you don't own the responsibility right now of identifying the things in your life that have the potential to be idols, then, then you're, not, you're not doing it right. Like, let's do it right. Okay, are you with me in this? Are you, are you contemplating and considering these questions? Are you, are you considering what kind of associations you have that have the potential to steal your worship from God? Okay, point number two, principle number two. Idolatry is often a sin of naivety. Idolatry is often a sin of naivety. Now, remember, the Corinthians lived in a society where the majority of their coworkers and family members and friends ate in the temple in their dining halls and shot from the markets that sold meat sacrificed to pagan gods. The majority of the people that they know did this. For them to receive this rebuke from Paul would have come as a surprise to many of them who were simply and naively sitting down to eat with their friends. That's all they saw it as. It was just, this was just a normal part of life. That's how they saw it. And so this comes as a shock to them. They were oblivious to the dangers of their associations, the dangers to them personally, but also to the spiritual harm it could cause other people through their testimony. Now, perhaps that's you. See, maybe there's idolatry in your life that you haven't been able to identify until today. You shouldn't feel shame about that. You shouldn't, feel, you shouldn't feel lesser than. You shouldn't feel bad that you've been lied to. You've been lied to. You've been deceived. Just like everybody else in this room. You gotta understand that sometimes we worship things unintentionally. Look at this, this passage, Habakkuk 12. I'm sorry, Habakkuk 2, verse 18. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image, and a teacher of lies. That the, so the, the, the idol itself is a teacher of lies, you understand? That the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake to the dumb stone. Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keep silence before him. So here we have this maker of a graven image who has naively bought a lie that this graven image that he is making is worthy of his worship. He's ignorant. He's foolish. He, he has been deceived. He did not know. So sometimes we associate with idols out of our own ignorance. We're deceived. We do things out of habit. We do things out of culture. We do things because it's what our parents did or what our friends did. We do things and act and behave in a way 
that we didn't know was setting us up to misprioritize the Lord. We didn't know. But here's the thing. Now you do. Now you do. And so you've got, you are obligated to do something about it. It's still sin. Just because you were dumb about it and you didn't know and you're just now discovering it for the first time, you're like, oh my gosh, that thing's been an idol this whole time. I didn't even know it. Just because you're just now figuring it out doesn't mean that you're not obligated to do something about it. It's still sin. So it has to be dealt with. Principle number three, <clears throat> idolatry is often a sin of wickedness. Sometimes it's the exact opposite. Sometimes you know it's wrong and you do it anyway, okay? Now, in other words, an, an idol is nothing, the meat is nothing, but the choice to knowingly engage with activities associated with the devil's worship is worship with devils, and you knew it, and you knew it the whole time. Now, consider Israel for a second. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, Israel saw the glory of the Lord, and they knew that he was worthy of worship. They knew it. Now, I'm setting you up here. So in this passage, they acknowledge the nation. They all see it. They know it for what it is. They see the power and the authority of the Lord their God. This is what it says. And all the people saw the thunderings and lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. These people saw God for what he was, okay? But by Exodus chapter 32, they make their own God and they worship it. Exodus 32.1, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this, Moses, the man that brought us up out of, of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron and he, re he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a gra graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink it. And, and so the nation, you know, they, they, choo they chose their toy over the God that they knew, right? They, they didn't want anything to do with the God of Moses. They wanted their own God, right? Just like, just like teenagers, okay? They grow up in church. They don't want the, the, the God of their parents. I don't want that God. That's my Alex being sarcastic impersonation. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> So, 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 so what, what do they do? What do those rebellious teenagers do? They create their own gods, right? Right? Taylor Swift or something, right? They worship, some, they worship something else. They make it up. And, and the funny thing is that when they make that thing, then they look at it. And they're like, okay, well, now I'm obligated to give all my energy and all my effort and all my time and all my worship to that thing. And so they bow down. It doesn't ever give anything back. It doesn't talk to them. It's completely indifferent to who they are. They don't care. Taylor Swift doesn't know your name. And we give 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 and we become a slave. You can become a slave to our idols. 
Exodus 32, 7, the Lord said to Moses, go get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way, which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshiped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and will make of thee a great nation. Now, here's the deal. This is the point. Sometimes our false worship is an act of sheer belligerence and self-control. Yeah, sometimes we do it naively, but some of us sometimes create an idol. And everyone around us is saying, look, bro, that's an idol. What are you doing? Why are you giving your time and your energy to that? Why, are your, that? why is that preoccupying your thoughts? Why is that a priority? Why is that girl? Why is that guy? Why is that relationship a priority? Why is that thing important? Why are you only working all the time? Why is it so hard for you to come to church? Why is it so hard for you to get to Bible study? Why is it so difficult for you to get up there and get baptized when you know, you're telling me, you know it's the right thing to do? Why do you keep telling me you can't get discipled? Why do you keep telling me you can't meet? Don't you know this is what believers do? Why is it you've given you all your time to that thing, it, over there? It's an idol to you. And then you, as a stiff-necked person, me as a stiff-necked person, we say, well... <laughs> it's about self-control. It's about wanting something that we can worship, something shiny to keep in our pocket. And the truth is, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. For idolatry is a burdensome thief. Our associations often seem inconsequential, don't they? Just another late night of scrolling, just another bowl of ice cream, just, just going out with the old friends, just going out with my old friends. You know, it's been a minute. But we become a slave to those things that deplete us and, and they steal our hearts. Isaiah 46, 1 um, the nation of Israel is getting ready to leave captivity. They're getting ready to leave Babylon. And the Babylonians are threatening them. They're threatening them. They're saying, look, if you leave, if you go, um, our gods are going to come after you. It'll not be good for you. And this is, what, this is what God has to say about that. He's trying to encourage them. And this is what he says. Bel, which most people believe to be Baal, boweth down. Nebo stupeth, that's, their, that's a god of, of learning and education in the Babylonian empire. Nebo stupeth. Their idols were upon the beasts. In other words, just, you know, this is a prophecy that Babylon's gonna fall. It'll be defeated. And, and when it's defeated, their victors, the victors are going to take the idols because they want the gold. They're gonna take the idols and they're gonna load them up into carriages. And they're gonna take them away. And upon the cattle, your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. See, the evidence of idolatry, it may not be evident right now in your life, but we will be, it will be measured by how, many, uh, by how weary you are a year or two from now. You might not be able to recognize that this thing is an idol, but, but I'm telling you, three or four down, uh, years down the line, even maybe just a handful of months down the line, you're gonna be able to look at yourself and you're gonna say, why am I so tired? Why am I so burdened? Why is this so difficult? It's because you're he heavy laden. And the only thing that makes you have, you know, Christ doesn't do that. He relieves our burdens, right? 
His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But listen, false idols, devils, they load us down. They make us weary. So what must be done? What must be done about this? There's got to be something we can do. Yeah, okay. Look at, look at verse five. Or, sorry, sorry. Write down number five. This is what I want you to do. <clears throat> Idolatry cannot be permitted to coexist with true worship. Okay? It can't be, it can't be allowed to, to coexist with true worship. All right, that's Paul's point. So verse 21. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. I mean, that's what they've been doing. He's saying you, you cannot, like you should not, like it's bad, quit. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of, of devils. These things can't coexist. They can't go together. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, here's the deal. When our worship is divided, no one wins. I mean, that's the devil's point is that no one wins. God doesn't win, you don't win when our worship is divided. And so here's our key point. And this is what's really important for us to know. God is jealous of the idols that your heart, heart flirts with. But I'm just flirting. I mean, what husband would put up with that? What husband would put up with their wife saying, oh, honey, it's nothing. I'm just flirting with him. I don't think anybody would be down with that, right? See, and you might not even fully be aware of the idols in your life, but God sees, and he's jealous. He's jealous of your associations. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 18, 21 says, and Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long halt ye between two opinions? I mean, he's telling the nation of Israel, look, you don't get to worship the Lord and the false gods. If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. What a shame. That's what we're in danger of today. Is, it, is me presenting you with these truths and you leaving and having not made up a decision about things in your life that you know are stealing away God's worship. Matthew 6, 24 says, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold, to the, hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 2 Corinthians 6.15 says, And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will, I will receive you. So here's the deal. You can't afford, Christian, you cannot afford to continue to entertain associations and affiliations that are keeping you from serving Christ. You, you can't keep doing it. Like decisions have to be made. I mean, God gave you a mind and a heart for this purpose so that you would have the ability to take heed. I mean, his words are very plain. The scripture is very plain as it concerns false idols. And yet so many of us have them. It's wealth and prosperity and jobs and women and marriage and children and, 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 and you know, 
our time and our energy in video games and movies and entertainment and, and just whatever it is and whatever it is, whatever that association is. Not, it's not good or bad in and of itself. It's what we give to it that makes it, a de- makes it the table of a devil. devil. That's what makes it the, ta- the, the table of devils. So you have a decision to make. You have a decision to make. Are you provoking God to jealousy with any area of your life? If so, it's time to repent. It's time to deal with that. We're gonna do that today during our time of praise as we close out. And so I wanna invite the praise team to come back up. And as they do that, I'm gonna pray. So let's bow our heads and let's see whether or not there's a decision that needs to be made. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we love you. And we acknowledge, we acknowledge, uh, Lord, that this is, is tough and it, and it requires some maybe genuine contemplation on our part. I mean, we really do need to take heed because fleeing idolatry is a really tricky thing to do when you live, you live in the new Babylon, when you live in the new Rome. It's real tricky to flee idolatry because everywhere we go, it seems like there's an idol and a grove and a high place set up. And it just, it gets so familiar, it gets so common that we don't even acknowledge that, that we've, we've invited those things into our home and into our apartments. And that we, we, we practice false worship with our family and with our friends and, and we do it in our bed late at night. It's, it's hard for us to see that. And so God, be merciful towards us. Help us to see it with your eyes. Help us to consider it from your word. And Lord, help us to consider our ways because we desire greatly not to fall, but to stand and to stand in the power and the authority and on the foundation of Christ and his word. And so God, show us, show us how to deal with our idols. Teach us to remember you and how good you are and how we belong to you and how we're called your people and how you carry us and how you deliver us. Help us to remember those things because you're good and there is no graven image that can counterfeit your glory. So help us to put our pride down and be honest with ourselves and confess before you today that we might worship properly and that our praise might be made whole. We ask for your help in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.